Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Connemara is one of Ireland's most stunning regions. It's the definition of rugged beauty. The green fields that dominate much of the east of Ireland give way to a much more breathtaking landscape out here. While the Atlantic Ocean forms a boundary to the south, the often dramatic mountains and lakes of Connemara National Park dominate much of the countryside to the north. While today tourists flock in huge numbers to Connemara, the history of this part of the world in recent centuries has been shaped by what is a hard, unforgiving and lonely landscape. The population in the 1840s was sparse, but they suffered appallingly during the Great Hunger. This is also not too far from Mam Trastna, a place that came to the world's attention in 1882 when a brutal murder of an entire family in a remote community, one that remains unsolved to the present day, intrigued people far and wide. Today, as you weave your way through the often lonely hills and valleys, this is the last place you expect to find a stately home along the lines of Downton Abbey. Yet, as you make your way along the shore of a long, narrow lake called Loch Paulacopel, what looks like a castle of sorts appears in the distance clinging to the side of Drochruach Mountain. This is the sprawling mansion that is Kylemore Abbey, a building that can rival any grand house in Britain or Ireland. The story of life in this house and how an English industrialist relocated his family to this lonely spot in the west of Ireland in the later 19th century is fascinating. It's a story of upstairs-downstairs, servants and extreme wealth in the Victorian age. It's also one of extraordinary technological advancements where exotic fruits were grown in vast glasshouses in what was once regarded as a barren landscape. Over the next 45 minutes, you'll join me inside Kylemore Abbey to hear this remarkable history. If you're not familiar with the show, my name is Finn DeWire and this is the Irish History Podcast. Now before we get going in Kylemore, I just want to highlight a new feature on the podcast I've just rolled out. It's called Acast Plus and it's a great way to support the show. 
and in return for your support, you get an enhanced listening experience. On Acast Plus, all episodes of the show are ad-free and you get access to hours of bonus podcasts. These include exclusive shows on topics like Charles Trevelyan and the Land War, not to mention a new series where I interview historians. The first of these is with Maeve Callan and it's on the history of the Knights Templar in Ireland. That's all available at Acast Plus now and you can find how to get this at the links in the show notes below. Now to the podcast. When I visited Kyle Morabi, Ethna O'Halloran, the experience manager and an expert on the history of the building, began by explaining the story of Kyle Moore to me in what was once the ballroom of the house. I started our conversation by asking Ethna to explain how a mansion, which seems somewhat out of place in such a lonely spot like Connemara, came to be built there. So we're obviously up in a pretty remote part of the west of Ireland here, Ethna, and it's not necessarily where you expect to find a big stately home. Can you give us a sense of why this house is here? And I suppose when you're coming down the road, it almost jumps out in an unexpected way to find a building like this here. So could you give us a sense of the history from the first day someone put a brick here through to this incredible building we have today? Well, you're absolutely right for a start. It is a very unexpected style of a building to see as you're wandering through the valleys of Connemara. And that's exactly what the original owners intended to have. That's the type of effect that they wanted it to have on people. So the castle was built by a man called Mitchell Henry and his wife, Margaret. Mitchell was a very wealthy industrialist from Manchester whose parents were Irish and he grew up with a great passion for Ireland. So we believe he came on honeymoon here in the late 1850s and himself and his wife, Margaret, they seen a beautiful little fishing lodge that was on the site that the Abbey is on today. They fell in love with the area, with Ireland, and Margaret said someday she'd love to live in that fishing lodge. So Henry went one better than that. When he inherited his father's company, A.N.S. Henry, and became very, very wealthy, he bought the fishing lodge and he bought 16,000 acres of land in the area and they began work on Kylemore Castle. So that was his legacy for his wife. So they laid the foundation stone in 1867. Now to explain why the castle looks like a castle, even though we call it an abbey today, really the style they used was called baronial gothic and baronial gothic was all about creating a medieval vision in Victorian England or Ireland. So they created this castle that looked like it could have stepped out of the pages of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. But on the inside then it had all the conveniences of the age. They had gas lighting, they had central heating, they had a lift for bringing coal and water up and down stairs. So they had great luxury on the inside, while on the outside it looked like a fortified medieval castle. And really it was part of their vision of life that they wanted to have as an escape from their life in London and Manchester. So you can imagine in the late 1800s, even if you were very wealthy, living in Manchester and London was actually really difficult because the cities were so overcrowded, they were so dirty, they were full of smog, a lot of it coming from the type of industries that maybe the Henrys themselves would have been involved in. So to escape out to the country was the ideal. Henry also had this great passion for Ireland and he really wanted to be instrumental in creating change in Ireland so he became a founder member um, of the Irish Home Rule Party. And what they were looking for was um, Home Rule for Ireland, so a parliament that had actual proper powers in Ireland that could make change. And Henry really felt that Irish problems were social problems rather than political problems. He wasn't looking for an end to the union. He thought that Ireland's future was inside the empire, but he believed in equality. 
and he also believed that you could create a, a much better situation for tenants and landlords. So he wanted Kyle Moore to become an example to all other landlords and to politicians of what you could achieve in Ireland. So they wanted somewhere that looked incredible, that would draw politicians and journalists and people from all over England. They wanted to change that rhetoric about Ireland, that Ireland was a lost cause, that it was cholera, disease, famine, immigration, land unrest. Henry wanted to change that story. So he was creating a fabulous escape where people could come and be inspired by Ireland again. So they built this fabulous castle. It had 70 rooms, 33 bedrooms. They had a beautiful ballroom, which we're standing next to now. Beautiful Italian inspired interiors. So great luxury on the inside, everything down to a Turkish bath, beautiful dining rooms, beautiful bedrooms and dressing rooms. A huge staff, many of whom came over from England with the Henrys. So this was their second home. Their major home was in Strahedon House in London. So Kylemore Castle was like a cosy cottage compared to Strahedon House in London, which was very, very swanky indeed. Can I just ask yeah. you a question actually, because yeah. just being up here, it really strikes me. Mm. Getting the building material for yeah. a building like this yeah. up here, like getting up here is yeah. almost a, you yeah. know, it's a, it's a drive through like yeah. pretty remote countryside. What, what did they do to uh, so import the material? It's or? a question we're often asked and it just still today, it would kind of boggle your mind to think about it. So the granite that was used on the building came from Docky in County Dublin. Um, there's limestone from East Galway. So even getting the limestone from East Galway to here, obviously no trucks at that, at that time. The railway wasn't established in Connemara by the beginning of the Henry's era here. So everything came by boat. So around the coast from Dublin up to a local little pier here. So that's why so many people also were employed in the area. Every man who had a donkey, a cart, a horse, every able-bodied man um, in the area was employed um, at Kylemore. And a lot of it would have been getting the raw materials here. And the raw materials weren't limited to Irish materials. They used a lot of Italian limestone or Italian marbles. They had a huge amount of Italian craftsmen who came here to work on the plaster ceilings, to work on carving many of the fireplaces in situ in the house. The Gothic church, which was built later in the 1880s, used French sandstone from the north of France. So you can imagine just, even just thinking about the logistics of getting the materials, getting the right tradespeople here, it just boggles your, your mind. And it's just amazing as well. I think they had the money. And also at that time in Ireland, like if you had money and you were of the landlord class, you could do whatever you wanted. Basically you had power. But at the same time, it took somebody with a great level of imagination to imagine this castle where they imagined it, to imagine that they could have the lifestyle that they had here. Also, people were very disillusioned about Ireland and nobody was willing to invest at that stage as well, like in the late 1880s or 1870s. Nobody was willing to invest in Ireland. People felt it was too risky, there was too much unrest, that there mightn't be, that it might even be unsafe to bring your family here. But Henry, that didn't really seem to bother Henry. He had a great faith in Ireland and a great passion for Ireland. And he really was convinced that he could really push change through. So, and also he had a great level of detail in the way he thought about bringing change to the country. One of the things he was obsessed with actually was water and bogs and draining Ireland. And he used to go on at length in Parliament about trying to raise money to drain bogs in Ireland to make fertile lands. 
and here he said his prou proudest achievement actually on the Kylemore estate was he won the Royal Horticultural Society gold medal for drainage which sounds very nerdy and boring <laughs> but at that time when there was huge pressure on the land and making the land fertile was a huge um, issue and bringing in crops as well that could make the tenants and uh, that could make their holdings profitable again and also make people not so dependent on the potato like it sounds like a boring issue but it was a really really important issue as course, well at the, time. at the time and for yeah. somebody like Henry to have an interest in that is quite interesting in a way so when they moved into the castle they had nine children but it was a big family so the older members of the family were already young adults by the time they came to Ireland the youngest members then would have had an amazing lifestyle you imagine um, here in Kylemore. So Violet was born after they came to the castle and Florence was two when they moved in here. Now they would have spent a large portion of the year here while still traveling back and over to England. A lot of their servants for the house would have come with them from England and then all the outdoor staff then would have been from the local area. And then certain skills had to be brought into the area as well. For, so for example, land in Connemara would never have been ploughed until then. So people had to be sourced from different parts of the country who had those skills to come in and do those kind of things. So gillies would have come with them from other parts of the country and over from England as well. So they did bring a lot of workers with them, but also it created this huge employment on the estate as well. And one of the things that really fascinated me about Kylemore and you know I really wanted to to make this episode is it's a building that it has so many lives and incredibly this was used a lot of buildings like this fell into disrepair disuse mm -hmm. in the 20th century this didn't it enjoyed several lives as I said can you talk us through mm -hmm. maybe its later history and how it adapted to the 20th century? Yes, of course. So today it's known as Kylemore Abbey. So we've, it's been called Kylemore Abbey since 1920, and that's since the arrival of the Benedictine nuns. So the Benedictine nuns had an ancient abbey uh, in Ypres in Belgium, and they were known actually as the Irish Danes of Ypres. But their abbey was bombed in the very early months of World War I, and they became refugees. They had to flee Belgium. They ended up, they were taken in by another Benedictine order in, um, over in England, in Ulton Abbey. They eventually arrived in Kylemore in 1920. So once the nuns arrived, it became Kylemore Abbey. That's why the building is still here today, really. And the nuns would have bought the building at that point? They did, yeah. So between the Henrys and the nuns, we had another set of owners, and that were the Duke and the Duchess of Manchester. So Mitchell Henry, unfortunately ran out of money probably ran out of steam as well kind of emotionally and physically because by 1902 they put the castle up for sale and it sold to the duke and the duchess of manchester so they were like they're a book on their own almost they're a really glamorous couple and we like to say as well that they brought the edwardian era in with them and um, they were really good friends of edward the seventh over in england and they wanted to make kylemore castle a royal holiday home really they kind of thought this could become the Balmoral of Ireland and they were closely linked with Edward VII um, in their time um, the Duke of Connacht came to here to um, Kylemore and Edward VII did come to visit as well but the Duke wasn't Mitchell Henry he wasn't involved in politics he didn't have a social awareness kind of like Henry but the Duchess herself became very popular in the area she was an American heiress from a very very wealthy family and it was her father actually who bought the castle for the Duke and Duchess as a wedding gift and we kind of think the reason behind that was the Duke was well known as a gambler 
a bit of a playboy. So we kind of think his father-in-law bought the castle thinking this will settle him down. He'll become a bit of a country squire. He'll mm -hmm. become interested in the land. There'll be no more gambling and traveling. But what really happened is the Duchess was left here a lot with the four children on her own. And the Duke would travel as a paid guest for people like the Hursts over in America and the Vanderbilts, all those kind of families. Uh, one of the Vanderbilts was his godmother, actually. So he moved in very wealthy circles, but he was usually broke himself because of his gambling. So they were a very colourful yeah. chapter in Kyle Moore's history. And where we're standing actually here at the ballroom, it was the Henry's ballroom, the Duke and Duchess turned it into a kitchen. And there was a lot of controversy at the time amongst local people because they felt that the Duke and Duchess were erasing the Henry's um, footprint on Kyle Moore. But really, probably they were trying to, you know, adapt the building for their own use. So then when the nuns arrived in 1920, um, the ballroom at that stage, which had become a kitchen, then became the chapel for the nuns. So this would have been a very central space for the community. So if you imagine the young women when they came in, they were professed in this room here. So this is where they started their life with the community. This is where they would pray together with the community five times a day. The school was here from 1923. So the schoolgirls came here for mass every day as well. So this was a really busy part of the building. And then at the other end of the story, when the nuns actually, when somebody passed away, this is where they had their funeral with their community here. And then their remains would be brought to the Neo-Gothic Church and the Benedictine graveyard over there. So they would start their life and end their life in the community in this room here. It's an incredible transition from a ballroom to Isn't have it? those yeah. uses. Yeah. And that continued, like the nuns are still on the estate? The nuns the are still here, they, they own the estate, so they oversee everything. So I work for Calmer Abbey Gardens and we run the estate under the supervision of the nuns, basically. Everything has to be in keeping with the Benedictine ethos of hospitality and welcome. They believe, they, one of their mottos is ora et labora, which is pray and work. So every member of the Benedictine community, they pray together five times a day, and every member of the community has to work in some way that benefits the community. So they all have different projects. Sister Carol runs a music school. Sister Genevieve runs the chocolate kitchen. I can testify yeah, to how yeah. nice the chocolates are. Yeah. I had some of them. So. so they're very active. They're always planning for the future. And as I said, they had a school here from 1923 until 2010. So that was a big um, step to close the school one which wasn't taken lightly, but a decision had to be made about how the estate was going to move forward. It's a difficult building to work with because it's full of stairs, it's all split levels. There was a lot of um, disability legislation that was getting more and more difficult to comply with. And then also the community were just at a point in their history where they were trying to, um, I suppose, gather their, their thoughts and to plan for the future. So they decided to go with tourism and to let the school go at that point. And Kylemore now is one of the biggest, if not the biggest employer in the area. So that's a really important. It's really important on that level to the local community. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So maybe what we could do now is go down to some of the rooms that if people come to Kyomore today, they can see it's kind of moving through that 140 years of history from, I guess, part of the world of upstairs downstairs that people will be familiar with and see some of those stories downstairs, maybe. So we've come downstairs now and we're in what is, I suppose, in some ways, a quite a stereotypical drawing room that people might associate with big houses. Could you just talk us through what the, what the room looks like and what it was used for? Okay, so this is one of the rooms um, that really was always kept as a good room, so it always retained some of its character from the 1800s. And we have been told that this was Margaret Henry's favourite room. So it's a very feminine room. It's not as sumptuous as it would have been in the 1800s, because in the 1800s we would have had silk-lined walls in here. The colours in here were sky blue, pink and gold. We have some of the original frieze work on the top of the walls here, but what we would have lost in the big fire in 1959 is the beautiful Italian plasterwork ceilings here. Now, originally the drawing room was the ladies' territory. So, and even the phrase, the drawing room, comes from the idea that you withdraw here after dinner. So the men would come down here after dinner as well and probably spend a polite amount of time with the ladies. But if you can imagine in this room, your manners had to match the room. So it was a beautiful feminine room. So see these little chairs here, these little gold straight back chairs. We imagine when the gentlemen came down to join the ladies in the drawing room, they'd pull up one of these straight backed chairs because the ladies were sitting on these tiny little fussy ladies chairs. And you can see the scale of them is very small when you consider the ladies were wearing very straight corsets and huge skirts on their dresses. And some of the chairs, we've noticed that if you sit back in them, they'll tip over. So we wonder if that was a little um, reminder to the ladies to keep their posture, um, you know, intact, that even furniture was reminding you that you were a lady, um, as well as the clothes that you were wearing. So in this room as well, the conversation had to be polite. So men wouldn't talk about politics in here or money in here. Anything that might upset the ladies' sensibilities would have been kept out of this room. So if the men wanted to have some more kind of masculine conversation, they would go to the billiards room. So in the billiards room, it was cigars, brandies, politics. You know, it was a much more masculine kind of space. So in here as well, you can imagine that this room had to be kept beautiful as well. And that was down to all the servants in the house. So the servants had, we had 70 rooms in the house. Every room had a fireplace. Now this room has a very spectacular fireplace. It's a white Carrera marble fireplace. And these ones, when a fireplace is of this quality, we believe they would have been carved on site. And the reason for that is this kind of really fine sculpture work here with the two beautiful female figures at either side. It would have been quite easy to damage that in transport. So it was a much better idea to bring the blocks of marble and to sculpt them here in the house. So as I was saying then, in the 70 rooms, that was the job, obviously, of the servants to keep these fires lit. And servants, in a way, in the 1800s, they had to be invisible. So they had to keep these houses pristine. They had to light the fire, empty the ashes. 
in the mornings when the people came down. So if you can imagine the drawing room might not have been used until the evening, but next door we had the morning room and the breakfast room. So by the time the ladies and gentlemen came down from upstairs, these rooms already had to be ready. They had to be warm and they had to be ready for them to entertain in and to relax in. So the servants had to be on the go from very early in the morning. And then they basically had to be out of sight. By the time the people were in these rooms, they had to be back upstairs tidying bedrooms. And so the servants had to do a lot of heavy work and stay almost invisible. Now, we don't know what the actual relationship was in this house between the servants and the, the people who owned the house. We like to think it might have been quite good. They brought a lot of their staff over from England here with them. But another thing we think, like sometimes people think it's terrible that the servants weren't allowed to really be visible or have a personality. But in another way, if you think about it, it probably was quite a difficult relationship because if you think about it, your lady's maid, who cleaned your room, changed your bed clothes, changed your chamber pot every morning, they knew everything about you. They probably were the first people to know in a house when somebody was pregnant or they knew when somebody was sick. They knew what you ate. They knew everything about your life. So there were very intimate details for staff to know about the family. So the, those boundaries were probably very important in many ways to make it manageable kind of relationship. And then also in these houses, there was also the idea as well that maybe servants might have been of a lower class, they mightn't have had the moral standards of the owners of the house. So they, even the servants areas would have their own kind of hierarchy. And that hierarchy would have been very important. It would have been seen as very important in the Victorian era to kind of, in a way, control the staff and to make sure that they behaved properly, that you might have heard stories before about some ladies in some of the houses were so strict that they would count out even the rags that were given to the servants for cleaning and polishing to make sure that the servants weren't stealing any of the rags, things like that. So we imagine and hope because of the type of ethos that the Henrys had towards local people and Irish people, that it probably was quite a good relationship between the servants and the owners of the house here. But it's interesting to think about all those different little upstairs, downstairs elements, like these beautiful rooms here were for the family and the servants really had to stick to the back stairs. There was a whole network of little back stairs going between all the rooms so they could stay hidden all day long, basically, and still manage to get all the work in the house done. Yeah, it's very interesting to think of that. I suppose the, the just as you, as you point out, almost flipping that power dy dynamic that yes. servants while obviously are there's no question the people they serve are more powerful but yeah. they have that power of knowing potentially very damaging secrets yeah yeah well at the same time i'm just thinking in this room is probably bigger than a lot of houses yeah. in the surrounding area. So yeah. it's just quite interesting to see those kind of tensions play out in a very physical way. Yeah, it's phase. really interesting to see how they managed to live in such close quarters with each other. And some of it probably was by, you know, there was probably quite not very likable traits in that, you know, that, that the servants were treated kind of as invisible. But there would be servants then who were very close to the owners who would have been really trusted, like the ladies' maids, maybe the head butler. They would know all the intimate secrets of the family and they would have to be trusted with that as well. So that would have been a very prized position as well um, amongst the servants to get those positions that brought them close 
to the family. So if you ma imagine even the gentleman's valet, um, that would have been very, uh, a really, really important role. So they would be doing everything from laying out their clothes in the morning to making social appointments for them and kind of being a buffer between them and the outside world. So that's a really interesting kind of area to think about as well. And then if you look at it from the servant's point of view as well, these jobs in houses like this would have been very, very prized positions compared to where other people were working. But at the same time, they would have worked really, really hard. The least desirable job probably in a house like this would have been maid of all work. So the maids of all work really did the scrubbing, the carrying, all the hardest jobs. They would be, yeah, they would. They'd be up to their elbows in a sink probably all day long. And you can imagine even if you think about things like what was used to probably clean the pots and pans, probably was very good at taking the skin off your hands and those kind of things. You know, but they didn't even have yeah. things like marigold gloves, which seems silly, but like... You don't think about these things. But, but yeah, if you're working all day long um, over a big pot of sink or a big sink of pots, you know, that would yeah. make a big difference to you. So it's the, the lifestyle was so different as well in that the ladies in the house, they were struggling to find ways to fill their days. So near us here as well, we have a beautiful ladies writing desk. We have a little sewing table here. So whereas the upper classes were trying to find ways and have hobbies that would fill their days, the servants were at the other end of the scale then. They didn't have any free time, you know, so their days were completely full from one end to the next. They would just, you know, flop into bed at the end of the day, totally exhausted. Whereas the ladies here, it would sometimes you can imagine even for these very wealthy families, the days maybe could have dragged quite a bit trying to fill your whole day with journal writing and walking and you know having teas and things like that um, it was very opposite types of lifestyle that people in the same house had now, we would be in the staircase hall here right in front of us there is what is known as the gallery saloon hall so the gallery saloon hall was kind of a multi-purpose area that led off the front halls and the gallery saloon hall was designed as an open area that could be used for entertaining so to envision it, as you're about to describe there, it's an oak panelled big space basically with an open glass ceiling bringing light in from up above because this was a castle that was set back into the mountain. So bringing light in was a very important issue. And at the top of the stairs above us here, we have a beautiful set of stone tracery windows here. Now back in Mitchell Henry's time, this was filled with beautiful German coloured stained glass, whereas now we have plain plate glass. So the plain plate glass was brought in by the Duke and the Duchess of Manchester, and they also brought in this oak interior. Before that, in the Henry's time, this room would have been very Gothic inspired, a lot of Italian marbles used here, beautiful Gothic arches over here, standing up on big columns of Connemara marble. So what they were using it for was, it was a practical room where you went in and out in the morning, going out shooting or fishing or going over to visit the walled gardens. But then in the evenings when you would come back, from being out on the estate, people might meet here and this kind of, it's almost like a stage area. And you can imagine the footmen could have trestle tables laid out for them. And then all the things that they had caught for on the estate during the, the day, woodcock and partridges and those kind of things would be displayed there. They would have their hot punch here and have a, you know, a little recap of the whole day. Then after that, they would head off to the Turkish baths. Now the Turkish baths adjoined the dining room and the Turkish baths were a really important part of your day. If you've been out shooting or fishing all day long and you've gotten damp, no Gore-Tex that time, you'd be in your beautiful Scottish tweeds, which you see in the pictures 
over here. So for the young gentleman in the house, dressing the part was very important as well. When you came um, to spend time in your country house, you have to be dressed the part and look the part. So after their punch here, they would go to the steam baths in the Turkish baths and they would have their their steam and they would you know relax and get warm again and then it would be upstairs up the stairs here this is the main staircase and there's lots of staircases in the back that would have been used by servants but this was the main family staircase here so you go upstairs then and your valet would have your clothes ready then for dinner time so you would get dressed for dinner back down here they probably could have a drinks reception again here before dinner and you would wait for the ladies to descend the staircase here so the ladies could make a great entrance coming down this staircase here now we mentioned how the building had a lot of different lifetimes basically so once the nuns came here and they opened the school this area became very important and it was used as a stage so this is where all the school plays took place and the Christmas plays there was velvet curtains up here and the girls and the teachers would sit down here where we're standing and then the plays would take place up here so it took on a new life at that point then and so that you could say that for the whole of the building the building had to work and that's why the building is still with us because it worked for its its upkeep basically and through the Henrys through the Duke and the Duchess and then on for the nuns and by becoming a school that's why the building is intact and it never fell into disrepair because it managed to evolve through the years. Maybe we could move on then to the dining room probably the room that most people uh, in their mind's eye picture in houses like yeah. this and I think there are fascinating places where a lot of the tensions between uh, servants and the people who live in the house maybe are most explicit. Exactly, so that's where you get all your Downton Abbey kind of moments will be in the dining room, would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> we've moved through the house and we're outside the dining room, but we've stopped at a gong. Ethna, can you explain what this is and what it was used for? This piece I really like because I think it kind of really represents a couple of different eras in Kylemore. So when the school was here, this was actually used as a school bell. So the girls would go out and ring this between classes and it was the job everyone wanted to get to ring the bell. But actually it's a dinner gong that was here since possibly the Henrys, but at least the Duke and Duchess, but possibly the Henrys. And it has some problems. It's got ivory tusks on the side of it, probably elephant tusks here, and it's Burmese silver. So it's a solid silver uh, dinner gong. So this would have been wrong to alert the people. So the ladies and gentlemen will be down here having their drinks before dinner. The head butler would come out here onto the little ante room here. He would ring the dinner bell and everybody would all come up the stairs for dinner then. Here we, okay, we go on in. Let look. Now, as you said, everybody loves dining rooms and our dining room is one of probably one of the visitors favorite rooms I would say along with the drawing room and um, we have it set today as if it was ready for you know a beautiful dinner here with the Henry family and dinner time obviously for Mitchell Henry in particular was a very important time because he was bringing a lot of important guests to Kylemore. He brought a continuous stream of journalists and politicians, people who could make change for Ireland were coming to Kylemore. People like Lady Augusta Gregory as well, the Oscar Wilde's parents, Lady Speranza Wilde, they came here as well. So these were people that were important culturally in Ireland at the time as well. And these are people as well that we like to think were influencing the Henrys themselves and maybe enlightening the Henrys about the Celtic revival, about the Irish language, Irish customs. And so you can imagine the dinner table would have been a very 
lively place with very lively conversations going on. Now the table isn't a huge table that we have here at the moment but this table can be extended as well because we believe the Henrys loved to entertain. So as you mentioned before it was a very isolated area but they had a continuous round of guests coming from England and from Manchester and all over Ireland. And the dinner table was very important to Henry as well in that it was somewhere that he could show off the achievements of the estate as well. So one of the boasts Henry liked to make was that everything that was served on the table at Kylemore was produced on the estate, except for the wines which they imported from Italy and France. So they had 21 heated glass houses. The glass houses were producing everything from figs, nectarines, bananas, melons, um, grapes. So they had huge success with their glass houses. Then they had extensive fisheries here. The uh, rivers and lakes were full of salmon and trout. Then they had access to all the seas and fishing rights all around the area here. So they had oyster beds in the area. So you imagine they would have been serving beautiful lobster, oyster, salmon. And so the menus would have been very, very sumptuous that were served here. And where the food came from, was through that door over there. So that door led out to the head butler's plant pantry and the plate room. So the plate room was an important room in every house and plate refers, uh, refers to silver, of course. So there was a tradition in these old English houses that actually that the plate room was always connected to the head butler's room. Sometimes they were the same room and there was a tradition that the butler would sleep with a rifle across his door. The reason for it wouldn't have applied to um, Kylemore Castle, but the tradition may very well have been kept on because it was kept on in very many of the big English houses. The reason for that would have been if somebody broke into your house, the money was in the plate room, you know, the silver is what they wanted. So that tradition, and it also represented the head butler's role, trusted role in the house. He was your um, first line of defence basically. Even though that's not really a concern they would have had in this house, it really represented who the butler was. Um, your butler had to be somebody you could rely on and depend on totally. So another thing we often think about, or I think about it as well, so you can imagine if you're a young lady from a wealthy family, maybe at 18 or 19, you're getting married off into a big wealthy family, you probably had not lifted a finger in your life, in fairness. Um, you know, you went to balls, you sold samplers, you did watercolours, you learned to sing, you learned to play the piano, but you didn't learn anything about housekeeping, how to run a house, you didn't know what servants did from one end of the day to the next. And all of a sudden you would be married into a fabulous estate and you were expected to run the household basically. So it was very important for the lady in a household like this that she would have a head butler and a housekeeper that she could trust completely. And you can imagine how that relationship could go wrong as well. If the head butler didn't like you, if the housekeeper didn't like you, they could make your life very difficult for you. Because the lady was, it was kind of a matter of pride as well that the lady in the house would run a really, really um, household really well, that there would be fabulous food on the table, that the house would be kept to perfection that the staff had really high morals. You were also nearly responsible for that, that the staff were turned out perfectly, that the staff were paid the right wages, that they wore the right uniforms at the right time of day. And this was a huge responsibility for a lady to take on, especially if she'd had very little responsibility for anything else in her life. So we like to think that the lady set up here 
and she would look at this door over here and she'd be able to see as the servants came in and out. That door led down as well as to the head butler's pantry down to a warren of corridors down to the kitchens, down to all the different larders and pantries, um, the still room, the fish larder, the meat larder. There was all different types of larder. There was a beer cellar. So this was a kind of a, you know, if you were entertaining somebody like the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, you wanted dinner to be seamless and you want them to leave here with like, wow, that place is amazing. If we could do that all over Ireland, wouldn't that be wonderful? So they wanted people to leave with this amazing impression. We actually have something on display over here that probably a lot of people have heard about. And it's a Mrs. Beaton's household manual. So Mrs. Beaton was one of the first, there had been cookbooks published like for generations and generations, but Mrs. Beaton's um, household management book became a sensation. And not only did it have really elaborate menus and illustrations, it also told the young lady of the house um, how she should manage her household staff. So all those kind of things, it would even give you tips on what time the servants should get up at, at different times of years, what time they should go to bed. Um, so she knew what to expect from her staff. So it became like a Bible for people trying to run houses like this. And also fashion kept changing and people wanted to know, they didn't want to be embarrassed if you had a house out um, in the sticks, basically, even if it was a fabulous house like this you didn't want to be embarrassed by serving a meal that wasn't fashionable in London at the time so it was all about fashions as well and Mrs Beaton's books were very up-to-date so you knew if you stuck with her guidelines you would be serving the right food at the right time to the right people in the right way so it was very interesting to think about what went on in this room. And in the overall schedule of the day yeah. at somewhere like this one of the big attractions or I suppose one of the ways mm -hmm. The, you could, they would make an impression on guests was to go hunting or fishing and then you come back in, you go for a Turkish bath, yeah. you come in for this sumptuous yeah. dinner. Yeah. What happens after that then? So after that then we started in the ballroom yeah. and that's probably where the day would often end for the okay. Henry's. So if it was a quiet evening, they were probably in their day with the ladies maybe in the drawing room. The gentlemen might, might go off to the billiards room. But if they had guests in and they wanted to have a bit of fun, they would go to the ballroom. Now we don't know if they had what you would call balls here, but they definitely did entertain and some of it is Considering the wealth of the family, it sounds quite quaint, actually, the way that they entertain. We know that Margaret Henry and her daughters actually put on plays that they performed in themselves up in the ballroom. We know that sometimes the children on a rainy day would be let, set loose in the ballroom and allowed to play up there as well. And then another important thing that the Henrys did here was a couple of times a year they would entertain the tenants from the estate. Now, that was a really important gesture on the Henry side. It was very clever also as well because even up to this day, the Henrys are very, very fondly remembered. Because the Henrys were exceptionally wealthy, because they were away from the social strictness that there would have been in place in London and maybe Manchester, they could do things a bit more differently um, on the estate here. It would not have been usual to bring your tenants into the house. So the tenants were invited in here, certainly at Christmas and maybe on a summer, occasional summer party as well. Um, they would be entertained in the ballroom and there would be big buffets of food in the dining room here. And another important thing they did was that the adult, the adult member of the Henry children on those parties, they would serve the tenants. So I don't think the Henry children were working 
um, you know, all day long. But it was a symbolic gesture, maybe where they would serve drinks to the tenants. And that was Henry saying, you know, that my children aren't any better than your children, that my children can serve you just like you serve us. So that was a really important gesture that became kind of legendary in Kylemore. And you can imagine the excitement as well of tenants who lived in tiny cottages being invited in to see. Because on a regular day in any of these houses, you would even be scared to go near the back door. You know what I mean? And if you did have to come up here to bring up a salmon or you would go to the back door of the kitchen. But on those days of those parties, you would come through the front door, you'd be welcomed in by the, by the butlers and the footmen and you would be served as if you were, you know, special guests of the Henry. So they were really important kind of occasions that went down kind of in the, in the family lore in the house. And we spoke as well about how how the castle evolved and changed its uses over the years. So the Duke and the Duchess and the Henrys both used this as their dining room. And of course, there's a beautiful view out here. And it was connected then to the morning room and the breakfast room down on this side. But in later years, when the nuns were here, this became the language room. So this is where the girls were taught French and German and Girl Guides was ran in here on a Saturday then. And so it, up until very recent years, this would have been part of the school as well. So we imagine that if the walls in this room could talk, they would have a lot of really interesting stories to tell. I'd like to thank Ethna for all her time and also Jessica Ridge for facilitating the podcast, as well as Tim, Gareth and all the team at the Abbey that make it such a wonderful and welcoming place. Finally, I'd like to thank Shirley for her help in getting this show out and all her driving to get me to Kylemore Abbey. You can find out more about this stunning place and how to get yourself there and see its incredible history at kylemoreabbey.com. That's kylemoreabbey, K-Y-L-E-M-O-R-E-A-B-B-E-Y.com. There's a link in the show notes below. Until next time, Sloan. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.